of the Tome Show is brought to you by Noble Knight, where out of print is available again. And listeners like you, thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. Hi, this is Brian R. James, the better James brother, and you're listening to The Tome. Welcome to The Tome, D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm James Intracasso. In this episode, number 253, I've hijacked the rest of the Tome Show crew to talk about Archmage, the first book in the Homecoming from R.A. Salvatore, who we'll be talking to later. And I typed Homecoming, that is correct, right? Yeah. Okay, because the prequel, chronologically first Drist <laughs> series, is Homeland? Yes. Okay. I believe that's correct. <laughs> so I'm always worried about mixing them up. <laughs> so James is joining us, joining me again, and we're going to talk about another R.A. Salvatore book. Um, so yeah, it's it's awesome stuff. So we're going to chit chat about the the Archmage Archmage controversy, and we're going to talk to uh, Mr. Salvatore. Uh, and you know, in six months, we'll do it again on the next book because that's how we roll here at the Tome Show. Woo! Uh, but before we dive into all of that, Noble Knight is still with us. Uh, because we love them and they love us and we want to support them and they want to support us and everybody gets along. If you haven't heard of Noble Knight, they are a brick-and-mortar game store that also has an online store. Uh, they carry the latest in game products but specialize in finding out-of-print games. My pick for this episode, since we're kind of talking about the beginnings of Rage of Demons, is the Rage of Demons Miniatures Brick. It's $108, but you get eight boxes of minis with four minis in each one, and they're the the, the high-quality, what is it, WizKids is the oh, company yeah. that makes them now, the pre-painted plastics. Um, so you can just get, you know, you pay 100 bucks and you get enough minis that you probably got most of the set from Rage of Demons, from the whole line, right? It's pretty awesome. Yeah. Have you picked up any of the Rage of Demons minis? Uh, I have not yet, but I have some on hold at my local friendly game there store go, that I have go. to go pick up. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Th- I I got some minis from the um, Elemental Evil set, and the Rage of Demons ones look good. And um, I don't think I've ordered any, and I need to because demons are one of my favorite things in D anD. d And there's a lot of them in this set. For yeah, sure. there you go. <laughs> In an election year, gamers can be divided on almost every issue. Is it more important to support a small business or to have the convenience of buying your gaming products online? Do you play shiny new systems full of epic awesome or gritty older out-of-print games that make even the groggiest of nards quake with fear? 
in this economy, is it time to stock up on as many high-quality discounted gaming products as possible, or is it time to sell the old gaming products you aren't using anymore? We are divided on every important issue. So in 2016, you should support the store that lets you do it all. Noble Knight, a brick-and-mortar small business with a strong online presence that has new products and specializes in out-of-print, all at a price you'll love. And yes, they'll buy your old gaming products as well. Check out the incredible offerings at noblenight.com. Tell them the Tome Show sent you, and help make gaming great again. Now, into the book. Archmage. Archmage? <laughs> uh, I say Archmage, uh, and I say it because uh, I think, like you, Jeff, I listened to the book on tape. Uh mm through iTunes and that's how the narrator said it. So, uh but now that we have uh interviewed RA Salvatore, which we'll listen to later on, uh and I heard him say Archmage a bunch, I feel silly whenever I say Archmage. Well, see, and here's the thing. I and I think this has been true of me for for a long time. I want to be the kind of person who says Archmage, but in the moment I almost always say Archmage. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> darn me. <laughs> Archmage sounds more powerful to me, though. Anyway, that's the title. That's not the important thing. What the what's important is the story. Yeah. What is the story of Archmage? So, uh, spoilers be danged. Is that what we're? Uh, should we give that warning here? Yeah. So, um, we're going to be fairly spoilery. I don't know that we want to like spill all the beans, but we we're going to spill a lot of beans. That beans will be spilled. Build, beans so. will be spilled. So if you are worried about bean spillage, um, this is not. This is the part where you, I don't know, skip ahead to the interview where we're only slightly bean spilling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is a little bit of bean spillage there too. There definitely is. Yeah. Salvatore actually admonished me at one point for uh, <laughs> spilling some beans. So. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, so the the story of this book is. Um, you know, at the at the end of the last book we talked about, Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf, uh, it, it's kind of clear that Bruinor is going to want to take back uh, Gauntel Grimm from the drow who have gone in there and taken it. So there's this uh, story where Bruinor and friends are taking back a dwarf homeland from some drow. May feel a little familiar. I've never uh, heard that story before. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but honestly, it plays a little different. And the reason it plays a little different is because of this other storyline that's happening. And this other storyline is all about what's happening in Menzo Baranzan with, uh, with the drow. And there are layers upon layers of people vying for control. Uh, and the Archmage title obviously refers to Gromp Bayenre, who is the Archmage of Menzo Baranzan. And he is uh he's he's vying for power against his older sister who is the matron mother of the first house of the city um because you know he's kind of sick of of being a male and being treated poorly and uh he thought that he he had a scheme in place when he thought Loth was going to become the goddess of magic but then she wasn't the goddess of magic so anyway He's he's enacting this new scheme at the same time she's enacting a scheme to increase her grip and her power over the city. And her scheme involves bringing demons into the city. And But uh, both of them are, are enacting these schemes having been manipulated by somebody else, by a greater yes. power. Yes, who's really the, the mastermind behind the whole thing. Yeah, she's really this 
greater power mm-hmm. uh, is the driving force of, of the whole book. Which, I, I mean, say. I suppose we could spoil because that's the one I spoiled in the interview. <laughs> and it's also in the very first chapter. Yeah, it happens early. That, yeah. that Lolth, there, I gave it away. Lolth is the one really manipulating the whole situation. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really is the is the impetus behind the Rage of Demons story. Like, Lolth is doing all of this. And, and you get the impression she's basically doing it to get the demon lords out of the abyss so that she can, like, do whatever that she wants and there's no demon lords to stop her? Is that the impression we get? Yeah, that was the that that she wants to rule the abyss, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that with all the other demon lords gone, she rules the abyss then. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I think made this story so different, uh, is, is the presence of these demons and that so much of the story is driven by Loth, where normally it seems like in these books, Loth doesn't... They, they keep invoking Loth, but maybe she cares, maybe she doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this, you can tell she is directly manipulating things and people uh, through demons and stuff, and demons are coming into the city, and then demons are getting sent over to Gauntlegrim. And so instead of the dwarves fighting a bunch of drow... All of a sudden, they're fighting armies and armies of demons, mm-hmm. and that makes it a very, very different story uh, and super interesting because the dwarves almost become, uh, you know, another set of pawns in this whole game. That's well, happening. and as much as this is the what third time that Bruiner has led a group of people to reclaim Gondolgrim, <laughs> and it's the second or third time he's gone up against Drow who have. Taken his ancestral homeland, whether it's um, whether it's the uh, the previous place in the Silver Mithril Marches. Hall, yeah, Mithril yeah. Hall, thank you. Whether it's Mithril Hall or Grantalgrim, right? Where whereas it, this feels like um, on the the at a high level, it's the same story that we've seen over and over again. Much like Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf felt like it was just a repeat story of Thousand Orcs, um, but I don't. This didn't seem tired to me. Like Thousand Orcs, I felt like I was reading the same story. This felt like I'm reading a very different story with a few similar instances. Yeah. Yeah, it really did feel like... And it felt like the right similar instances. Like it felt like those things that felt familiar felt familiar in the right way. Mm. Um, And then they, they, you know, he also had some dissonance there with the things that were familiar because the companions are together again, right? But they're not exactly the same people that they were. Well, and they're not even together because Regis and Wolfgar leave early right. on and are replaced by Athrogate and, and Ambergris. They are, which is also a great pairing and really fun to read about, but also, you know, becomes sweet and becomes a very kind of real relationship, um, which I thought was was handled. Well, you know what I enjoyed more than that is, is that um, – is, the change in them as we go through the the throne sitting scene, yes, where every dwarf yes. goes through and sits on the throne and proves themselves and swears their fealty and all that kind of stuff in Gontelgrim, um, is that I, I felt like suddenly these people who were kind of out for themselves are still dwarves, right? They're dwarves at heart. They're, that's that's who they because because you always get the idea from dwarven culture that clan is the most important thing. Unless you're an adventurer, unless you're, you know, evil, <laughs> unless you're whatever, and then you're the exception. Um, but you don't have to be, right? You can be those things. You can be Athrogate, who's really just looking out for himself, mm-hmm. and still be a dwarf first and foremost. Yeah, you know? yeah. 
And there's, uh, I thought one of the things that's really interesting that plays on that idea is there's a great exchange between Athrogate and Bruinor, um, where, uh, you know, Athrogate kind of talks about that, how he feels like, thanks to Bruinor, he's part of this community again. Um, and Bruinor doesn't even real, doesn't think of Athrogate yet as part of the community. And so there's this great scene that's written so well. Um, you know, and and has some nice subtlety and stuff to it. Uh, I just really loved that theme throughout the book. Was very consistent and and lovely to read about. It made you really cheer for the dwarves rather than like, oh look, they're a bunch of silly dwarves. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they're not the bad guys. So I'll root oh, for and them. there's some heartbreaking scenes too. Oh my gosh! When they're when they're they're in that battle down the cliff and they have the sort of zone of feather fall, so they're just jumping off the cliff. Yes, uh, and then the the drow wizards di- or or was it the demons? Somebody dispels the featherfall, but there's no way to send a message to the ones at the top, and so all the dwarves at the bottom just have to watch their friends jump off a cliff and die. Oh, it's so. Oh sad. my gosh, it tears tears you up. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. the The war scenes, the combat felt like it mattered a lot in this. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in, in Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf, it was kind of like, all right, we know they're going to win. When are we getting to the win part of right. this? Uh, and this did not feel like that. Um, you know, and, and I would say they even leave it open like Gauntlegrim is so big and so huge uh, that they talk about how Brunor won't be able to settle it in his lifetime mm-hmm. um, completely, you know, which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and as much as uh, and we, going back to Athergate and Ambergris, as much as they had their moments, um, mm-hmm. to the downside, I kind of felt like, and and I get into a little bit of this with um, the interview, I kind of feel like the cast of main characters, if you will, um, has gotten entirely out of hand. Um, <laughs> I mean, you had you had a full cast that was hard enough to keep track of before the spell plague and then the fourth edition hundred year jump and the spell plague and all that happened and all those characters were gone and you developed an entirely new full cast of characters that was hard enough to keep track of and now they're all back and so you have both full huge cast of characters together and so you know sometimes regis and wolfgar just leave and they're not in the book you know <laughs> jarl axel pops up and then but even when you get uh, an Afri- friend frere who was arguably the most interesting character in the last book even though he was barely in it then doesn't get to follow up and do anything with that right um athergate and ambergris are in this book but i don't feel like like the they go anywhere like they're not main characters and i feel like they should be yeah yeah and it's funny to that end uh and you know i saw a lot of people call this out on on social media and stuff drizzt is not really a a presence in the book for i would say the the entire second half of the book almost you know and he mentioned this in the interview that it's not really a drizzt book um it's it's ironic that drizzt is on the cover Sure, but as a marketing guy, yeah. you know. <laughs> but but it's not really a Drist book. It's a book that Drist is in, but it's a Bruiner and Gromf book. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely is. And they're the people whose head you are inside of the most. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, I think, I wonder if he had, you know, if he had been forced to or if he had forced himself to try to make Drist more of a presence in this book, it probably would have, you know, Characters like Ambergris and, and Athrogate would have taken even more of a backseat 
you know, so that we could get more Drizzt swinging swords around and stuff. Uh, and I'm so I love Drizzt. He's a great character. Uh, and I'm, you know, I think the end of this book definitely leaves it open for where he could go next. Um, so uh, so I'm excited to read about that. But I uh, I was kind of it was kind of cool to see a lot of other characters take the spotlight for a minute. You know? Well, I mean, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to agree with you and I'm not. Sure. Uh, on one hand, it's nice to see Drist around and and doing things but not have to be – not have to take all the air out of the room. Um, although there are some times that he does. Sure. Um, at the same time, I felt like w- even with a lesser role, Drist kind of grew more in this story than I've seen in most of the other books together. Like I feel like he actually went somewhere. He's having a crisis of faith. Um, he he almost dies again. Um, there's all this stuff going on, and uh, with yeah. him, and he and I feel like he's changing as a person in a way that I don't feel like he has before. Like I feel like this crisis of faith could actually lead to a permanent change in him, whereas normally we see a change in him, and it's like yeah. But it's kind of understood that this is temporary. Like when he went all feral and became the hunter, it's like, okay, that's a thing that's happening, but you know eventually he's going back. Um, His crisis of faith, I don't know that he's going back. I think this may be actual legitimate growth for Driss. And I'd like to see that. Well, and it's when we asked, you know, uh, Salvatore about it in the last podcast, in the Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf podcast, he kind of said, like, yeah, you know, Drizzt is, he's he's kind of over that, like, he's going to move on. Uh, and I was glad to see that that wasn't the case. And I'm glad to see that it may even create some problems, uh, you know, not not that I think marital problems are great, but, you know, <laughs> may create some interesting conflict between him yeah. and Caddy Brick. Conflict is interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um so, you know, I, I, I agree. And the other thing I would say about this is even for the, you know, half of the book where Drizzt is conscious, uh, he's, not, <laughs> he's not fighting a lot. And I think that's why you get some real character growth because a lot of the books where he's such a big force, it's like Drizzt is, you know, he's, he's having some internal conflict or whatever. Oh, and then battle happens and he feels great afterwards, you know. Right. And this... I don't know. He draws his blades maybe three or four times the whole book. Yeah, but then again, those people who think that Drist is kind of the Mary Sue character aren't going to be dissuaded from that opinion in this book because no, he's the one that shows up as the shining knight at the just the right moment and saves the day <laughs> and, and <laughs> takes out the the horrible creatures and whatever you know. So that's true. He does. He does. But I think you also, uh, you know, you get a taste in this book for like he could be defeated too. Oh, uh, yeah. which is nice. And yeah. oh, and speaking of changes in growth, right? One of his swords is broken. Yeah, and they fix it, but it's not magic anymore. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen with Drist suddenly having a non-magical sword, where he's had that same magical sword since, like, you know, the second book of the series? I know. Well, and I wonder if it's going to introduce a a new sword that yeah. he can get, uh, so we can stop talking about Twinkle as the name of a sword. Uh, would oh, be yeah, great. It is, it is Twinkle that broke, isn't it? It is. It is. Uh, Ironic that the that the defender is the one that broke. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I thought that stuff was great, and there are a lot of characters who uh, I get dropped somewhere in the middle of the book, and then we never catch up with them again. Mm. Um, you know, uh, Regis and Wolfgar are certainly one set, but then there's others as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Doom Wheel. 
Uh, she gets dropped on a cliffside, and then we just never hear from She's her. She's literally dropped in the middle of the book. <laughs> well, and, and um, as much as we talked in the previous interview with Salvatore about uh, Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf and how I, I had some concerns that Caterbury basically was a non-character. She was just a tool to, to funnel magic through. Right. Um, she doesn't have much of a growing role in this book yet either. Um, yeah. And he told us to kind of keep an eye out for her because she was going to be a big deal later. So I'm hoping it's in Maestro in the next book that he she shows up and really becomes something worth paying attention to. Because she, at times, is the most interesting character of the Companions to me. Mm-hmm. And yet we've had two books where she is a non-entity. So. I could see I, I could see how in Maestro she could become important though. I do think there's a little with her character, there's a little um like setting of the stage happening in this book, you know? Uh she's getting her she's getting her new staff. Uh oh, she's, yeah, well, she does do that. She's loading <laughs> up her magic items. Right, right, exactly. But she's also you know, it seems like she's learning a lot. Um and there's uh, a great scene with her in the end where she confronts Grumpf. Um, and it makes me wonder if, like, is are she and Gromph gonna team up in this next book? You know, is is mm. something? Are she Gromph and Jarlaxle gonna like have an adventure together? Because that would be amazing. I would love that. Although um, it does kind of bother me to see her stand up to Gromph that way. It's like really because Gromph is the archmage and mm-hmm. has been studying magic for literal <laughs> centuries and you've been doing this for like four years. <laughs> like it bothers me that she can stand and, and, and it's consistent with the game, right? Is that people can spend their whole lives as NPCs and gain five levels. But if you're an adventurer, you'll gain five levels in a week, you know? <laughs> so. Well, I think it's also that she confronts him when they're in the chamber of the primordial together. Well, uh, and it's and more than that, she confronts him when he is flipping out because right. he accidentally just broke the the underdark. Exactly. Yeah, I have to say, um, and I think you're having a, a similar experience. I was reading, listening to this book the same time that I started reading the Out of the Abyss adventure, mm. um, and that was great. Uh, it's great because there are a lot of uh, interesting parallels and you kind of get to figure out how the whole thing started, mm-hmm. um, uh, which is uh, it, it happens in such a great layered and twisted way. Um, you know, uh, the, that reading about all the drow stuff, uh, I thought was so rewarding to get that payoff at the end. Where no, I have to say, I felt like... Um... I get the Loth manipulation and doing it all and, and, and leading to all that happening. But it felt to me like Camuriel got, got one over on Gromf way too easy because he's Gromf, you know? <laughs> as much as he's got a silly name because that's how Salvatore names characters. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind of a badass, right? He's not supposed to – you're not supposed to be the most powerful magic user in all of Menzo Berenzen. And then get duped so easily, you know? Well, but don't you think that part of it is that Kimuriel is a psionicist, right? Uh, that was kind of the idea I always had was that the only person who could get one over on this guy was Kimuriel. Sure, because... but just the idea of, here, let me give you a spell or a ritual. Now, you go ahead and go have fun with that. <laughs> and, and he, like, didn't even know what it was. It's like, really? Because there's not many people in the world that know more about magic than him. 
he should at least be able to parse out kind of what the spell is doing. And if not, you'd think he'd have the patience, being who he is, to not cast spells he doesn't know what they do, <laughs> you know? Well, but is it? I mean, that's over the course of a year, he's using that spell to summon demons, and uh, you know suppose. what I mean? Yeah, he is working his way up to it, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I feel like there's that idea that the reason he can't he can't just summon a demon lord at the very beginning of the book is because uh, he is, um, you know, they're, they're building up to that, and Kimuriel has to prove to him that, like, this is actually going to work, and every time he mm. does it, uh, he's implanting little suggestions, too, into Gromp's mind. Did this book this take place over the course of a year? Uh, I think... I want to say yes. I know at one point he mm. summons right when he summons uh, Marilith. Mm-hmm. Um, they say to him, they say it'll be another like six months when he summons his final uh, creature. Okay. See, yeah. I think that's part of the issue, right? I didn't have that kind of timeline in my head. I thought it was happening much faster. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. Those. Those clues are so subtle right uh <laughs> they're not front and center no no and they you know they say like once or twice to mark the passage of time um it would be great if uh especially a book like this because not all of his books take over take this much time right sometimes they take shorter right. time uh, but like when i when you read the companions the companions was dated um and gave you the year Right um, before every chapter, like it would be great to have that in this as well. You know, well, and a lot of his books didn't do that, and I think they did it very specifically during the companions because it was dealing with the sundering, and and they knew how it fit into the continuity. Um, but I feel like Salvatore has gone out of his way in the past to avoid putting the dates on it, sort of so, to so that he doesn't have to worry about continuity and let somebody else figure out where it fits. You know, that's sort of how I feel like it works anyway. Yeah, it's yeah, just a I different level of coordination right. that that um, in the past he hasn't always. Well, in the past, I don't know. Maybe the editorial team hasn't always been good at um, my my uh, assessment is that in the past, Salvatore usually ran away from the realms. He found his own little corner where he could do his thing and not worry about being collaborative. But right. that may, you know, from talking to him, that may have just been him not wanting to deal with having to, you know, the editorial team and that's coordinating it all too. So. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense, uh, and that's what I would want to do too. I would want to find my own corner. And, and yeah, but as a realms fan, like part of the thing I really get into is seeing how it all ties together. You know, seeing how um, uh, a, a plague ship leaves a, a, do- a port in Bruce Cordell's book and then shows up in an Eric Scott Debye book later on. Like that's the the cool little moments, right? Totally. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As a fan, that's super rewarding. Yeah. That's why all the it's Marvel like, movies work. Just like I love reading DC Comics, and I and it's awesome when, you know, this thing that happened in a Batman story plays out in a Wonder Woman story, you know? Right. Not, not right. as a crossover, just that there was a change in the world here, and it affects the world there, too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, those those kinds of things are uh, great to read about. And it's, you know, it's the modern movie franchises are doing it all over the place now. Yeah. yeah. At least Marvel is, right? Yeah. And it is working out great for it's them. Going, it's going okay for them. Yeah. Yeah. For real. <laughs> right on. 
Uh, and that's, uh, but I think that's one of the other things is, uh, you know, we talked about this book having a ton of characters. It does kind of, if you have been following these Drizzt books from the beginning, you do get a lot of great payoff because, you know, uh, you're seeing drow and dwarves and stuff they maybe you haven't seen in a few books. Well, and that's always uh, sort of at the top of my mind a lot of times too, because, you know, I bring people into these books sometimes, you know, we, we do book clubs and I make Tracy read them and she hasn't read them all or whatever, right? And so I have it in my head that's like, I, at this point, I think I just got to tell somebody if they want to get into Driss books, here's Homeland, start at the beginning, right? And by the time you get to caught up with me, um, you know, there'll be five more books out because it'll take you several years. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's true. Because I don't, I just don't know that there's a legitimately good jumping on point. I think you just have to kind of start at the beginning at this point because there's just so much. There's no way you can start somewhere in the middle now. You just, you know, I mean, maybe with the companion series, but even that's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. Because there's going to be all this stuff happening in this book that you don't understand because you didn't, you never saw Mins or Baron's End before. Yeah, yeah, and now there's shorthand. Some of these characters have been around so long, they just right. do things that if you're a long-time reader, you totally understand the motivation behind, and if you're not, it would be confusing, right? Uh, characters like Jarlaxle and stuff in particular. Yeah. Yeah. So. And Jarlaxle is one of those that, that I adore. As oh. a, you know, the walking deus ex machina that is Jarlaxle, <laughs> um, who I just adore and doesn't get nearly enough screen time, and I kind of totally understand why, but... I miss my Jarlaxle. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so one of my favorite books was, uh, was it Cell Swords? When it's him and Artemis and Dreary running around doing their thing. And Artemis is kind of a big blob in those, in those whole things, right? Uh, he's kind of just moping around. But Jarlaxle is just brilliant page after page after page. <laughs> so. It really is. And fun. So much fun to read. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like, you know, maybe in the next book, uh, he might be the maestro. So. It does. Jarlaxle uh, might be playing a, a bigger and bigger role. Yeah, yeah. I'm still exactly. curious what happened to Dahlia and Artemis. We haven't seen anything from them, right? I mean, I know where D Dahlia is, but right, right. But yeah, who knows what's going to happen with her? And Artemis, yeah, just big question mark. Is he still in Gontelgrim? Is he, you know, what's going on with him? Yeah. Well, I mean, even I mean, we've been to Gontelgrim through the, the House of Zorlar and Drow. We've seen those stories. They're not talking about him, so right. I don't know what's going on with him at all. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know either. Uh, but I would love to see him again because he is one of my favorite characters and I think he's had a lot of growth. He's either one of my favorite characters or one of the characters that's like, why isn't he doing anything interesting here? You know? <laughs> Do something. He, cause, because he has so much potential to be super interesting. So Anyway, we've, we've rambled for, for half an hour now on this and yes. we haven't even gotten to the interview yet. Yes. Any last thoughts on um, Archmage? Uh, I would have to say that I really recommend this one. Uh, if you've been reading the books for a long time, I think this is a fresh take, uh, mm -hmm. you know, on on all this stuff. Um, and that, especially if you're reading Out of the Abyss with it, uh, you will not be disappointed. Um, and it sounds like it's going to set up something even cooler to come. So I'm excited. Yeah, that's tricky, right? Because um, Salvatore in the interview, and the people will hear it, is really excited about Maestro. And it sounds like there's a lot of cool things that I should be excited about Maestro too. But he was also really excited about the companion series, and I kind of kind of found most of them to be a bit. Eh, I wish there was more of this and less of that, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, especially the last one, right? But this book I thought was great. 
Um, mm -hmm. There are three things that this book has that I really like. Uh, dwarves, demons, and, and uh, active participating gods. Mm. Right. Those those are things that if you have that, I don't want necessarily every story to be um, what is it? The Crucible, right? Which is a story just about the gods, where they're the characters. <laughs> um, I don't want every story to be that. But we, I mean, the realms is a world of active manipulating gods that do things, and right. so I, I I want to see that in my stories. Um, so the three Ds for Jeff Greiner are dwarves, demons, and deities. And deities. There you go. Yeah. yeah. All that, right. Th I don't know if those are the three Ds, but those are definitely three Ds that I really enjoy. <laughs> um, however, a D that I'm not a big fan of, although I'm not against it, um, it's, I'm just sort of meh on drow society. Like, okay, oh, really? I, I got it. Yeah, that was my favorite part of this book. <laughs> I know. You love the drow manipulations, and I'm like, yeah. Okay, you know what the best part of the drama manipulations was? It involved summoning demons, and it was all happening because of a god. <laughs> so <laughs> you take those two things out of it, and it's just another bunch of drow stabbing each other in the back. <laughs> Which is well, fine, but I would be exhausted living there. Like, I don't know how drow society functions, mm -hmm. because it feels like it would just implode within a year, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Well, and that is true, and it's... I would say even more so in this book, they talk about the very early days of Menzo Baranzan, and you're like, how did this ever work? <laughs> yeah. Like, as a historian, as a social studies teacher, I look at this and like, this is not a functional society. Like, this shouldn't exist, <laughs> you know? Right, right. Only through the manipulations of Loth should this exist. And this is the first time we've actually seen Loth really care. So, <laughs> uh, I, uh, Vegas Lancaster, who is often on the Roundtable podcast, mm -hmm. um, he actually has a theory about why the drow are constantly backstabbing and killing each other and stuff. And it's that the Underdark has so many limited resources that they have evolved to be evil as a way to control their population and not all die. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there you go. And that would explain why almost every race in the Underdark is evil, right? Right, yeah, exactly. I mean, other than the, the primordial sort of monster under your bed archetypes that they fit right right yeah exactly i mean yeah, i get why why they are what they are literarily mm -hmm. sure yeah because it's cool to have that right in a, in a literary world or not jeff you don't have to have it it's fine <laughs> <laughs> all right all right okay uh shall we uh get on to our interview with r.a salvatore sounds good take it away jeff we are here now with New York Times bestselling author R.A. Salvatore. Bob, how you doing? Same as always, rolling along. <laughs> I love it when I get to leave my. I'm a teacher, and I, you know, so I leave my school at the end of the day and said, "All right, guys, see, see you later tonight. I gotta, you know, interview a New York Times bestselling author." <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it's just Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> You're the only person that I've interviewed on a podcast so far that my girlfriend has known who you are. So, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> well, so, we are here talking to you about Arch Archmage or Archmage? Archmage. Well, that's the debate, right? Is it Archangel or Archbishop? I don't know. <laughs> I I think I prefer Archmage, but it sounds more powerful. I keep saying I prefer Archmage, but when I'm talking about it, I keep saying Archmage, so I must yeah. be wrong. I go back and forth. Yeah. <coughs> I'm uh, talking about one of those two books. Yes. 
Um, so we usually start off a discussion about books by asking, you know, as concrete or esoteric as you want to be, what is Archmage about? Okay, well, as I've said many times on this show and everywhere else, it's one long story to me. So the last book, Vengeance of the Iron Dwarf, um, <laughs> basically tied up a war in the Silver Marches. But what we were left with was King Bruner in the field with thousands of battle dwarves around him. Bruner's not going to let that go to waste. So he wants to go get him some Gauntelgrim. And but unfortunately, there's a drow family there. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and there's going to be lots of other big bad things there as well. So mm-hmm. it's not going to be an easy get. That's half the book. The other half of the book is the going-ons in Menzo, Baranzan, where uh, Quintel Banre is now being kind of coached up by someone. And um, she's really putting, squeezing her fist tight on the tight on the city. And... There's other plots going around that none of that she doesn't really understand, and the end result is something really weird and bad happens, and that's all I can say. <laughs> well, and and it's interesting because um, you know we're used to sort of the drow plots and whatever, and it's usually in, in a twisted plot, you know, manipulation sort of situation that I'm used to seeing from the drow. Um, whoever has the most forward-thinking plot is sort of the master manipulator. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's Loth. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you read Loth the book. Loth is manipulating everybody. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to worry about spoilers. I'm assuming do? if people are listening to this, they've read the book. Okay. <laughs> That's a dangerous assumption. Um, <laughs> or at least yeah, there are... Okay, so everybody listening, if you're hearing this, I'm assuming you've either read the book or you're okay being spoiled. Mm-hmm. There, they've been warned. Okay, well, that doesn't make it better, but okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I'm writing the Dark Elves, I always I always have this idea of this, like, kind of superficial, straightforward plot that's going on. And then I sit back and ask myself, well, what's really going on below that? And then I sit back and ask myself, okay, that's what they want me to think if I dug deeper. What's really going on below that? And then I find out that there's about eight things going on beyond that in eight different directions by eight different Dark Elves. In this case, there is there are higher powers at play not the gods so much but um some real baddies that are mm. manipulating an awful lot of things to um for their own ends mm-hmm. and maybe to the detriment of their so-called devotees um and maybe not we shall see but uh yeah it, it and it all came together beautifully because of where certain characters from the past happened to wind up. Um, you know, when I when I looked at the structure of it and how it had to play out, knowing that I had a former fallen matron in the right place and I had one of her nephews, actually. I don't think he's a direct son. I, th- I don't know. I'm not quite sure about that relationship. <laughs> but a noble of her house in another right place to facilitate it. Um, I wasn't going to let that go. I mean, it just, it's just, it, when all, if you just keep peeling, you find the core of what's going on with the drowning. I, I think it's consistency. It's certainly not, um, you know, this kind of prescient brilliance on my part in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. But the consistency of the story, the logical consistency of the story, 
always I always seem to find that answer when I dig deeper and things are in the right place for that answer to come to fruition. And that was Archmage. That was that was the story of this book, the second story of this book. Uh, so let me ask you a question along those lines of drow machinations. And there are a ton in this book. I really loved getting into all of the politics and who's doing what and who's manipulating yeah, who. <laughs> uh, is it fun to write an evil drow baby? <laughs> <laughs> Honest, I, I have to tell you something. Yvonne <laughs> Elf, Bromp's daughter. Has be will become in the next book one of the most interesting characters I've ever written, hmm. and I only wish I could write twenty more books about her. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean you're gonna. I don't think evil's the right word. I think that that's the expectation, but we shall see. She's not good, certainly, but um, yeah, no, the character just came alive in a big way in this book but more so in the next book um really really pleased with the way that worked out and that was unplanned that just that just kind of hit me by surprise i didn't even know i didn't even know yvonne l was going to be in this book in any way whatsoever and, and she just kind of said hey 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 shh listen i got a plan and so i listened and she had a plan and it's pretty cool <laughs> i i love that character i think she is so awesome and and compelling and scary uh yeah um i'm see again i'm, I'm getting confused with the next book. How, far, how far along has that character come in this book you can kind of refresh my memory yeah, not not very it's more yeah. of a of an introduction a taste mm -hmm. yeah. yeah there's a lot of scenes of uh almost it's the other characters reacting to her you know? Oh, okay. So you haven't seen nothing yet, man. Yeah. <laughs> she's a baby. Yeah. I feel like she hasn't left the playroom yet. Yeah, she hasn't, and then she's gonna. What she's gonna discover is that the entire world is her playroom. Mm. Oh. I'm not sure if she's the maestro, if Jarl Axel is. Hmm. Interesting. No, I, she. Believe me, you 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 just got a tiny little taste. <laughs> well, now I really now I'm really intrigued by maestro. Okay. Uh, so oh, I think Maestro tops Archmage ten to one. What's that? I, I think Maestro tops Archmage ten to one. Oh, okay. No, I'm serious. I I don't think I've ever had more fun writing a book. Wow. That's well, interesting. Not, yeah, I look forward to that. And it was it was funny because Wizards told me I had to do something in that book. They had a specific scene, not not for the storyline or anything, but they had one specific scene they wanted in the book. And I laughed at them when I saw the setup, and I was like, "That can't happen." There's no way that can happen. This makes no sense. And so I went with that when I had to write it. And then I figured out how I was going to do it. And I was giggling the whole time I was typing it. And it, mm. that's like the last half of the book. So. Is it a scene that, was re that they needed because of the Rage of Demons storyline? Yes. Okay. And I want to ask about that later. But before I do, as we're getting into all this character stuff, you talked about how there's basically two storylines going on. Uh, and honestly, the cover has one of the, the best um, pieces of art I've seen of Drizzt. Um, but at the same time, I, I kind of want to ask, the title is Arch, Archmage, which is definitely not Yeah, it should have been Drizzt. a cover with Gromp. I agree with you 100%. But What's that? It should have been a cover with Gromp. I agree with you 100%. Oh. Yeah, I mean, I really like the art, but, I, but my question is, you know, whose story is this? Mm -hmm. 
It doesn't really feel like a Driss story. It feels like a Gromf and, and Bruner story. Archmage is yeah. a Gromf and Bruner and Quenthal story. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say most of all. And the Camariel story, too, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's a big part I think of he it. really st- – Driss is – yeah, Driss is not front and center in this book in any way, shape, or form. I was surprised to see him on the cover. But you got to understand something, and people don't <laughs> understand this. They really don't. Um, Dritz is it. Whether I like it or you like it or not. He sells the books, huh? (laughs) He sells the books. I mean, Wizards wouldn't, right now, if I tried to write a book without Dritz, Wizards would be like, no, no, no. So that book I was going to ask about, are are we going to get a book of Regis and Wolfgar and what they're doing? That's not going to happen? I didn't say that. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Wizards is whining at me right now. I don't know. But at the same time, while this is not a Drist book, um, it feels like sort of through the internal monologue and the, and the the letters or whatever at the beginning, not the letters, but the you know what you know what I'm talking about, his reflections at, at yeah, the beginning the sections. Um, it feels like Drist is even as he's coming out of the last book where he was revealed as a tro- as a chosen is having a bit of a crisis of faith. Does that seem fair? Well, it seems totally fair, but fair. But how was he revealed as a chosen? I don't know, glowing light and, and destroying the the. You mean darkness? the glowing light that Gromf Bayanre was? Right, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> Everyone thought he was a chosen, but I mean that was one of my favorite scenes in the book. Right, you got Dritz floating up to the air, and this glowing lights flowing out of him and, and burning away the darkness, and everybody thinks it's Myleki, and in the bushes, Jarlaxle's looking at Gromf and just shaking his head, laughing because it's Gromf. No, uh, you missed that. I did. I missed it. <laughs> yeah, that's not my leaky. He's not a chosen, and he absolutely is having a crisis of faith. And the reason he's having a crisis of faith is because faith has never really been strong with Dritz, except for faith in something better. To Dritz, my leaky was a name he found to attach to that which he believed in his heart. When Caddy Bree came back from Arula Dune after her sleep and supposedly had communed with this god figure, my leaky, and told him that. All goblins and orcs were evil, and you you kill them. You don't talk to them, you kill them, and even the babies. And that just that just assaulted Dritz's Dritz, um, sensibilities. That's mm-hmm. not what's in his heart. And so you can hear what she's saying, and to obey the goddess, he would do that. But Dritz obeys his conscience. Mm-hmm. And if there's, if there's a name that you can attach to his conscience and his sense of right and wrong that matches with him, then he's, he'll say, sure, I got a goddess or I got a god. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a follower of Maliki, but he's not really. He's he's much, much more a follower of that which is in his heart and conscience. And so that is just too jarring a disparity from what Caddy Bree says and from what he believes for him to ignore it. So, yeah, crisis of faith, crisis of confidence. Absolutely. Well, and it feels like this is um, something that's been building and coming for a long time. So it is nice to sort of um, get – get, uh, not resolution, but get some movement on it, right? Well, we got to remember that before the – if you go by the storyline, it, it's been about three years since Dritz has had his friends back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before that, for a couple of decades, although most of – part of it was sleeping, um, Dritz was with Entreri, Dahlia – Afar from Fear, Efren, and Ambergris. So he was with characters not of like mind. And before that, it was it was him and Bruner. I mean, it's he's come a long way. And 
Yes, he's he's so thrilled that Caddy Bree is back and and his friends are back. That's true, but he's gone through an awful lot in the in the meantime. So, I mean, in the in the last series, when it was just Dritz and Bruner, they had a gnome and a half orc with them, right? Jessa was a half orc. Is she evil? She's half orc. Um, Dritz had in the short story ran into the goblin Nojaim, who was a slave. From everything Dritz could see, the people enslaving the goblins were the evil ones, not the goblin. Nojaim certainly didn't seem evil to him. And plus, if he goes by that, those absolutist statements about reasoning beings, he's evil by everyone else's perception. Mm -hmm. So it just it just is not it's not who he is. It's not what he believes. And so that's the that's the crisis of faith. I mean, you know, how do you reconcile that which you know to be true in your heart or what you believe to be true in your heart. I can't say no. Nobody knows anything, right? You know, it's it's like the the gay man in the Catholic Church type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile that? That's when when this faith that you believe in except for this one thing and it but it's a big thing. It's the essence of who you are. How do you reconcile that? And I don't know that a lot of people do. Some do, some don't. Now, in in the process of discussing that, you mentioned that he's got his old companions back and, and that cast of characters with us. And he had a whole other um, cast of characters in the, the after the time jump. Um, is the cast size of the books getting difficult to wield i mean there's a lot of sort of characters who you know in this story it seems like we're going to play with these characters and the other ones just sort of go away and and they they the pieces are movable right well the pieces are moving mm-hmm. i mean dahlia was lost to madness because of the mind flayers um the monk showed up on the battlefield killed a dragon and went <laughs> back to the monastery he played his role. Uh, the dwarf Amber is with Athergate now, which is a great couple. I love those <laughs> two together. And Efren's looking for his mother. So, you know, they're all around. They're they're, they're popping in and out of the story when they need it, mm. or when it makes sense. Well, and in this book, you even got rid of two of the the main companions, um, Regis and and Wolfgar. How could I not? Regis is in love. Sure. How could he not go back to Danola? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a story that that I knew was coming, or I figured would be coming. Um, Don't I think did, for a moment I've forgotten any of the people who weren't on screen in this book. Yeah, well, that's the thing is, right? I, I knew that that was coming. I just didn't realize it would be happening off screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, who said this? <laughs> there's a ton of people on screen on this book. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I'm wondering when you're when you're writing Drow, um, I you know even as as a DM, right? Like it's easy to all your evil characters kind of fall into the same trappings and tropes and that kind of thing. You do a good job of making every Drow very distinct. Hmm. Um, and how how is that when you're writing a lot of evil people and in a lot of evil people's heads? How is it that you make them distinct? And how does it affect you as a person? <laughs> it doesn't affect me as a person. That's good. That's good. I'm a conniving little bastard too. Uh, no, it's, it's, 
No, it, it, you say evil. Nobody gets up in the morning and says, "I think I'll be evil today." That's for cartoons, right? <laughs> so they all have they all have motivations, and you just follow those motivations. Um, you know, when you start talking about Zolaren, right? And the Zolaren drow for, and I didn't. I mean, they they're the ones known for the house wizards, right? They're the ones who elevate the men, right? Um, it makes sense that what Jarl Axel is feeling right now, it makes sense that Jarl Axel and Matron Zerith have a relationship, had a relationship, mm-hmm. and that Matron Zerith is very sympathetic to Jarl Axel, Gromf, and the rest. That makes sense because she's the one who, for she's the one matron, the only matron, not. Barris and Del Armgo, they elevate their males, you know, they're warriors. They're known for their big their big weapon masters and great warriors. But those people don't hold high place in the high in the political hierarchy of the house. They're just, you know, tanks. Um but in Zolaren, the males actually hold power. So it it makes a lot of sense to me that Jarl Axel would gravitate to that, given who he is. And these kind of things, like I said, there's, there's a there's a logical consistency to the Dark Elves amidst all the chaos that has been there since day one. And I don't know how. I didn't do it on purpose. It just worked out that way. That I just get I get to know who these houses are and how they react. And uh, one thing that really helped me with this book, I got to give a hat tip to uh, Brian James and um, the Menzo Baranzan redo that they did. Oh, yeah a couple of years ago because that book he they did their homework and they really they really nailed it and the things that they created made such sense within the context of what I had done before and I used that quite a bit as a resource in terms of like the fanatical Malarney zealots right hmm. and the um, house Hunsrin and their their trade routes and things so you know, there is a logic to them. It makes sense. It's been a living, breathing world, but we've made sure that we're breathing in the right direction for all these years. So when I'm going down there, it's not hard for me to figure out, you know, I, I know who Quentel is. I know who Sosumptu is. I know who Ivanel is going to be. I know Manolan Fay. I know Gromf. I know Camiriel. I know Dritz, certainly. Um, you know, I know these characters. And... They, if they were monolithic, if they were just like, I'm going to get up today and do evil, nobody would read the books. I wouldn't read the books. I wouldn't <laughs> write the books. I'd be bored. Um, so, you know, here we are. And it, it's such a fun time to be back playing with Dark Elves again. Mm. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about the Rage of Demons generally and how – because you were involved sort of in the in the planning of the Rage of Demons storyline as I understand. Is that right? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. So how does this book uh and I and the the uh, coming books, how does how does this interact with Rage of Demons? Well, I mean, this book is kind of the All right, when I did the when I, I'll give it I'll, I'll give you an analogy. When I did the Cutter um graphic novel mm-hmm. where Doomwell kills her brother, runs away with the the sword of sharpness there and is chased by Tosan Armgo and her mother who's a Oh, a moon elf from the Moonwood. Um, that story actually began the Silver March's War, because when Tosun wounded um, Sinefain and left her for the orcs, because he was going to go with Doomwell, 
among the orcs was Lorgru, the son of Obuld, who gave her back, and that's what set everything off. In the so that that was kind of it becomes kind of the catalyst. That was the you know that was the uh, the murder of Archduke Ferdinand, if you will. Hmm. Um, in this book, we've got kind of the same thing going on, where it makes sense from where I was to where we're going. And that's how I keep everything straight. If you look in this book where where the city is right now, where Quenthal is right now, where Gromf is right now, especially after, I mean, we saw Gromf mad at the drow more than he hated the dwarves in the last book, right? Yeah. And he's the one that wrecked the darkening. Mm-hmm. It all falls together. So with Rage of Demons in this book, it's the ending of this book that really opens the gate, so to speak. And not just for one. He breaks it. You see? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that opens the gate for the games and the other authors who are working in Rage of Demons to play with their own demons and demon lords and demon princes and all the rest of it. Well, and that um, that was interesting as well because he opens the gate and, and Demogorgon comes through. Uh, but Rage of Demons involves all of the demon lords coming through. Are they going to make appearances later, or are you just dealing with Demogorgon specifically? Um, I can't answer that. Okay. He nice. didn't open the gate. He broke the gate. Right. <laughs> well, he, he thought he opened the gate. He opened it. You can't close it right, right. now. Right. Okay. And I will tell you that Maestro ends um, the Rage of Demons timeline. Okay. Um. But again, you know, you've got different people working on products within within the context of the bigger event. That's how we're doing it now. And that means Aaron Evans, Troy Denning, I believe in this one, are both doing books. And Cryptic is doing quests. Uh, I'm not sure if Legends of the Sword Coast is spinning up in time to be in Rage of Demons. They probably are. I don't know. I know they have a, a pack that goes with it. Yeah. Right. Okay. So when you have that, you have to take some things with a grain of salt on, in terms of, like, it's same with the Sundering, right? When we did the Sundering, I mean, if you look at the Companions and then maybe Ed Greenwood's book in the Sundering, they're very disparate books. They take place in different, in different regions. They take the timelines are different. But that's okay. Because we're, we're, it's like we're telling a story of World War II, right? Where I'm doing, you know, the Battle of Britain and Ed's doing the the siege of of Berlin. It's the same is true at Rage of Demons. So whatever Aaron's doing for her big conflicts or Troy's doing for his big conflicts or some of the quests that Cryptic's doing, which I wrote by the way, some of them. Oh fun. Um the you've got to just fit them in and you always have to have a grain of salt ready to stick on your tongue to remind yourself to take it with a bit of grain of salt as to where things are going. The inconsistencies will be minor. If those little tiny details are going to bother you, then you know you might be crazy, uh, be driven crazy by all of this. But generally speaking, we're all on the same page, and that's a really good thing. And it's a really hard thing, by the way. <laughs> so who gets to be the hero? Who's going to stop the Rage of Demons? Is it in the tabletop game? Is it in the novels? Is it in the stop. video games? Huh? It stops. I didn't hear him. <laughs> it's the new Forgotten Realms. Uh, 
so uh, along those lines, um, this is on a little bit of a lighter note. I don't know if in your crazy touring you got word at all of the uh, PAX Acquisitions Inc. Yeah, game. I saw the video. <laughs> Uh, is that canon? People sent me Facebook messages. Hey, have you seen this? Is this legal? <laughs> is Patrick Rothfuss really going to use Guinevere in the book? <laughs> uh, so, uh, so those are all my questions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I laughed my butt off watching that. Chris Perkins is like the world's greatest DM, isn't he? Mm. Oh my gosh, yeah. Uh, although I do have to say that next time I see Scott, he's getting a slap upside the head. <laughs> he was way too happy to kill Dritz, wasn't he? He was. He really was going for it. Come on, let's get him. Come on, Scott. <laughs> Stop it, dude. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that was... That was nice to him. I gave him a quote on his book and everything. <laughs> and he's like, trying to kill my character, man. I actually, actually, I love what Patrick said when he was like, I, I really feel bad about killing another author's characters. Then he still squinted me. That's true. That's true. He did. Oh, I thought it was brilliant. <laughs> uh, but so does that actually give us a little taste of maybe where Drizzt is, is what's going on with Drizzt in the Maestro? And obviously he's not fighting the Acquisitions Inc. guys, but perhaps he's loose in the Underdark with a touch of madness. I never said that. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's been implied places, though. Mm-hmm. Well, there's being mad and there's mad. Right. You know. I'm not saying, dude. You know? <laughs> Here, I'll tell you the next book and I'll tell you the book after that. Nobody needs to buy it now. Well, Fair enough. In, in its place, what what can we look forward to coming up? What should we... Why should we buy Maestro? Because it's a ton of fun. The same reason you should buy all the books. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's not very very many specifics I could hang my hat on. Well, that's about all you're going to get. All right, I'll tell you about Maestro. Let me tell you about Maestro. No, I'm not coming. Never mind. Okay, thanks. <laughs> you're up. Well, in fairness, you probably have two people that are going to buy it anyway. Yes. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I can't speak for all of our listeners, but yeah. the two of us will almost certainly be picking it up and hopefully talking to you about it, uh, it about a month later good. again. Yeah, it seems to be the way of the world, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will tell you, I did in the Rage of Demons Neverwinter game. Yeah. I, I did some quests with them involving a dwarf wearing really weird armor with a head spike. <laughs> and another dwarf that people are going to know who's got a horn missing from his helmet. <laughs> and a certain halfling that people have come to know since 1988. <laughs> and a certain dark elf that... I, the Dark Dritz isn't actually in my quest, but he's in Rage of Demons. Um, but I, I did a couple of quest lines for, for Cryptic, and I had an absolute blast. And I haven't been able to talk about this for a year and a half, because I did these quests a year and a half ago. Mm. And then we, um, they were waiting for the right place to put them in, and they thought Rage of Demons would be the perfect place to put them in. And um, so we did a little retrofitting and... Uh, they did a little retrofitting. And I got to play them. I was up at Cryptic last week. I actually did a live stream with them and everything. Did a bunch of interviews up there uh, 
with their marketing team and um I got to play the quests and they're not even done yet but I had an absolute blast like they haven't done any voiceovers yet they haven't added a lot of the the little extras that they're working on and I had an absolute blast <laughs> so I was really pleased with with what they did with those quests hmm. so when you play Neverwinter some of the quests are mine and you'll recognize Quint <laughs> How is it different when you're writing for a video game versus writing a novel? Well, the biggest difference is that when you're writing a novel, your characters are the heroes, and people live vicariously through them. Mm. In a video game, the character that matters the most is the character the player's playing. Um, you know, the, the players write their own stories. I just give them a consistent world, hopefully, in which to write those stories, where they can suspend disbelief and immerse themselves in the story they are writing with their character. You know, Dritz, you don't want Dritz or Bruner or Puent or Cadbury or Wolfgar or any of those guys to be the hero. You want them to be the sidekick and you want the player to be the hero. That's the whole point, right? That's why we play D&D. That's why we play these games. We want to be the hero. So, you know, the worst thing you could do if I, the worst thing I could do if I was writing those is have this monster the player can't handle and have the companions of the hall come in and slice and dice the monster the bits. And say, hey, we saved you. And play it be like, you know, screw you. And log <laughs> off. I would. And, you know, it's the same thing when you're DMing. You want to be a good DM, let the players write the story. You want to be a bad DM, lead them by the nose. And, you know, that, that's, just, that's just Dungeon Mastering 101. And that applies when you're writing for computer games as well. Yeah, and how much of that leaks into, I mean, because this is not a storyline being told in one medium. Right, and that kind of goes back to my that original question was who's the hero going to be in Rage of Demons? Um, because the hero in Rage of Demons is going to be the players who play the game, who play Neverwinter, who play you know the fifth edition module for it. Those are the heroes. Um, okay. I know who the hero is in my book of this one and the next one and the one after. I know who the heroes are in those books. I'm sure Erin knows who her heroes sure. are. And Troy knows it, but I don't think there's one, like... One hero. Yeah, one, like, guy's going to go out there and, you know, do like Catherly did in The Ghost King when he locked the dragon away forever. I don't think somebody's going to do that in Rage of Demons to shut it all down. I don't think that's the point. Okay. And uh, I will tell you that the champion of Menzo Baranzan was discovered and was put forth. Hmm. How much did you? Um, how much were you involved in the writing of the tabletop adventure? I wasn't. And not at all. Okay. No, not for this one. Okay. Oh, too busy, man. I just <laughs> know that they they interacted a bit with Minzo Baranzan, uh, and obviously some of the storylines interact. But uh, I assume that was just based off of the the story outline that the whole team put together. They kind of have to. I mean, it's sure. it's look, I, I, I would kind of lose my mind if if people were using my characters and taking them places without even me knowing or without you know without asking me for input that kind of thing i really hate that's when i would walk away if that started happening but that's just not how what wizards plays anymore they're they're being incredibly um you know access they want the authors to be accessible to them and they're being accessible to the authors and um so, yeah, I mean, Driss shows up in Rage of Demons 
and in the game, cryptic game, and I didn't write him. But he's 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 an NPC in that. He's not one of the main quest guys like in the quests I did write. I could have put him in the quests I did write, but I didn't know we were doing Rage of Demons. I just had some quests I wanted to tell about Quentin Bruner um, <laughs> that just happened to fit um, with all that's going on there, and they should just be fun. I mean, it's it's the way it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be having fun, but. Okay. Um, you know, so if, if Wizards is going to do, I mean, when they did the Player's Handbook, right? They had Bob Roll Bruner in the Player's Handbook for fifth edition. I didn't know anything <laughs> about that. I thought it was hilarious. I wish they told me that I was going to be in their book, but yeah, I thought, I thought it was hilarious. I mean, well played. I think Shelley Mazenoble had to be behind that. Yeah, that sounds like her. Yeah, it really does. Um, I thought it was hilarious. We're on a team. This is a team. You know, I I write my books by myself, but my books are part of the team, and it's the same for all the authors. Very good. All right, so so Archmage is out. Um, by the time people hear this interview, they'll have also heard us sort of chit-chatting about it, uh, and, and hopefully got an idea what what that's all about. Maestro is coming up next. When does Maestro come out? I think it's March. Okay. So it's so clear to me. It might be March or April. And then the last book comes out in October of next year, but that won't have anything to do with Rage of Demons. It'll uh, tie up the Homecoming series. So in the spring, we'll Well, get, there will uh, be some leftovers from Rage of Demons. Oh, sure. There. I imagine there'll be at least After Effects, right? Oh, yeah. Things just seem to hang around. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in the spring, people can pick up Maestro, and I'm sure we'll try to chat with you, um, you know, April-ish about that, so... Sounds like a plan to me. All right. Thanks for joining us again. Yeah, thank you. Always a pleasure, guys. And that's the end of this episode. Thank you, Noble Knight and R.A. Salvatore, and all of you for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links when you use Amazon or D&D Classics. And if you want to get a hold of us, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com. Or call us up at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. That is a U.S. number for our international listeners. Um, If international listeners want to get a hold of us, shoot us an email. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And send an attachment with your voice if you you want to leave us (laughs) your voice. Uh, And that's episode 253 where we kind of let all the evil in as we reviewed Archmage or Archmage in this episode of I'm off the wall.